Oh, I have to pull up my outline so I know what our opening sentence is. But it's the same seven words every time. I think I remember it. <laughs> it <laughs> is it? <laughs> is it? Welcome to Obstinate Headstrong Girls. I'm Amy. And I'm Jessica. You have to say your part. And we're two friends that talk about romance novels. That's what it is, right? Yeah, except today we're three friends talking about Bridgerton, the TV show. Yes. Three so, friends slash sis- sister. Yes. So today we have with us my sister. Her name is Julie. Julie, say hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, Julie of the Hank Green, John Green, Pizza Miss Pants fame. That's yes. where we've talked about Julie before. What? Remember, when, <laughs> remember when we went to Cleveland and we saw John Green? Yes. I talked about that. Oh, okay. Cool. And her pizza pants. Yeah. Yes. My sexiest pants. So, Julie, are you a romance reader normally? I am sometimes a romance reader. I go through phases where I want to read romance novels for like a you know four or five month span and i'll read like five or six of them and then be off of it for a while i guess that's what i'm feeling like romance (laughs) yeah that makes sense do you remember your first romance novel so amy might actually remember the title of the first romance novel i ever read i don't remember because i um was probably only 13 or maybe 14 Mm -hmm. and i stole it from her room yeah you um (laughs) and was scandalized it was steamy well it was steamy for like 13 year old me and i was like i can't believe amy has this book but (laughs) what was it about i remember very little about the plot oh well how am i gonna remember the title i didn't own only one i know well it was a it was definitely a period piece and Um, It was a woman who was, you know, married, but not for love. And the husband was like abusive. And she had a daughter that was blind. I remember that being part of it. So this for sure sounds like one of the books I got in that bag of books from my friend's mom. (laughs) Did they have covers? Mm -hmm. Or they were remaindered? Okay. Yeah, no, they had covers. Mm. Do you remember the title of it, Amy? Obviously not. I have no recollection of any specifics. I feel like if you're going to steal a romance novel from my room, you should have gone with one of the cute YA ones I had, because I of that I had several as well. Um. Yeah, but I felt like those probably didn't have anything steamy in them, and I was curious. <laughs> That's fair. You had your Eloise moment. You were like, where do Eloise babies moment. come from? I related so strongly to that oh my god it was there was no like romance or intimacy in that question she was like literally physically what happens and no one would tell her (laughs) so yeah let's dive in then to the show so we kind of come in on it, it enters us on the family dynamic, which I thought was interesting. So they're at the house, they're trying to get ready, and you've got sisters being too slow, and sisters waiting on sisters, and brothers being annoyed, and one brother isn't there at all because he's late. And everything about it was like very much how I pictured this family from the books, where they're just like comfortable with each other, they spend a lot of time together. And so it, was, it just felt like a very real kind of family dynamic to me which i thought was a good intro and different from the book in that in the book we start with simon's flashback so in the show we start with the bridgertons which makes just like logically makes more sense that you would introduce the reader to the bridgertons or the watcher to the bridgertons first well amy we're introduced to simon first in a prologue which i know you don't acknowledge (laughs) as being a thing it's just chapter one you just made chapter one and you (laughs) named it fancy Yeah, so we're, it's this, like, swirling, like, there, it feels monumental. Like, you know, we sweep through the streets, we see their massive house, there's a lot of activity going on. Eloise with the bangs. So many bangs. I I like her bangs in this scene. I cannot with Daphne's bangs. What is that situation with the devil horns? 
Okay, the devil horns are bad, but I like the baby bangs. Well, when she does the kind of thing where it, like, curls, it's, like, two curls, I think that that makes sense for the time period in a way that is still okay looking. But almost any other iteration of the bangs, I'm like, why are they so short? If they were an inch longer, it would look normal. But it kind of looks um, like an accident, you know? Like, she tried to do it herself and then was like, oh, my God, now I have to live with this. Yeah, it looks like something that I cut. I remember very vividly cutting my bangs while hiding under the kitchen table. And I, like, cut them, like, right here. And that's what <laughs> mid, Daphne... Mid-forehead. Yeah. That is what Daphne's rocking. I I know mini bangs are back in style, uh, but I, I thought it made her look 12. Yeah, so. it, it made her look young. To me, the whole cast looked pretty young. And I think, like, in a way that's true to who they are in the books. But I'm like, they're my age. Why would you cast them like that? Which they're not. I just picture any person in any book that I like to be my age. And that was something I was curious about. Um, Just disclaimer, I actually did not read the books um, by instruction of Amy to give more of a, you know, look at the TV show. And I was curious if the books were more specific about how old the characters were meant to be. Because I figured if the, the girls were just, you know, coming into society, they were probably in their late teens. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, and they, I believe that as far as the casting of how old they're supposed to be. But for some of the men, I was like, are they supposed to be almost 30? Are they supposed to be like 20? How old are they supposed to be? So my understanding of it, of it is that like in this season uh penelope is the youngest to come out and she's 15 her sisters are both older than her i assume by like roughly a year year and a half each and then this is daphne's first season but i believe she's supposed to be 16 which that's a departure from the books because she's in her third season when her book starts, whereas this is calling this her first season. But I think the implication is that Lady Featherington pushes her daughters out into society younger because she's more desperate to have them married, Mm -hmm. whereas Lady Bridgerton probably let Daphne choose what time she wanted to come out into society. And so Anthony and Benedict... And I believe Colin are all older than Daphne. So if she's, let's say, yes. seven, 17, then they're all, like, increments older than that. Like, each a year and a half apart from each other older. Okay. Yeah. So in in this first, we see the Bridgertons who are, like, the. I like the way the camera frames them to be, you know, even though they're swirling and there's like a lot going on and Daphne's running late, you can tell they're supposed to be more put together. And then you flip over to the Featheringtons and it's like you're supposed to know, like you're supposed to judge them a little bit. And mm-hmm. they're they're not filmed fondly, I would say. Right. It really sets them up as being like the good family and the bad family, you know, is like mm-hmm. the hero and the villain kind of from minute one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, they're, like, framed as cartoon characters, almost. And yeah. then we get to see Anthony's butt. <laughs> My note says, Anthony introduced butt first. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that he is... Okay, first of all, I hate all the orgasm scenes in this entire series. Okay. Um, like, the faces, I mean. Like, I hate the <laughs> women's faces that they're making. It's a lot of, like, I don't know. If you want someone to consult on your show, I'm happy to help you. Because I think there are sex consultants that are like, this is what an orgasm looks like. Anyway. I read that there was, it's called an intimacy coordinator. Yes. On this show. I love that he checks his watch while he's banging this opera singer. Um, so they they go up here in front of the queen, which is another difference from the books. Because in most Regency novels, you don't have royalty. Which, once I got over that initial hurdle, I was like, all right, whatever. I think she's kind of compelling. She doesn't do much. The Featheringtons faint. Yes. though I don't even know which one it is. If it's Philippa or the other one. I think it's, it's Prudence, not Penelope. The other one. Prudence. 
Which and, I was curious about. They made a big deal out of tightening the corset, and then that is the reason that she faints, because she isn't able to breathe. And then they're all wearing dresses that are cinched right under the bust, so you cannot see any effect of the corset at all. Did anyone else notice that? Did that bother yeah. anybody? And how fearful were you of a nip slip because of where the corset was? It like it looked like it was like right at the areola line. <laughs> And it's like it made it look like your actual covered boob was only like an inch and a half wide. It was like whatever lump cleavage you had over the top of your dress and then the smallest bit of fabric and then a ribbon to indicate this is now the bottom of this bust. But like from ribbon to top of fabric was never more than an inch and a half, like regardless of body shape. And I just don't understand if like short boob was like... I feel like it it made the chest look smaller in a weird way because there was quite a bit of cleavage going on, which was just the fashion of, you know, like, that's what corsets did. But yeah, I felt like it created an illusion that was not particularly flattering. Well, and then, Julie, I agree with you. I was like, they've got a lot of business going on underneath these silk satin dresses. And the thing I know about wearing a satiny dress is that it shows everything underneath. And so if you're wearing like a lot of boning, um, not the kind of boning like you do to someone else, but like you're wearing whale bones in your corset, <laughs> like I just I I was like, what's the point? Because these dresses are fairly forgiving. Exactly. Like, Why does yeah. she have to be cinched so tight that she faints in front of the queen when if she wasn't cinched that tight, literally no one would know. <laughs> Which and the way they dress different characters is interesting because I think Lady Featherington's dresses are much more form-fitting down through the waist than her daughters mm-hmm. are, which makes me wonder if it was if that was maybe intended to be the style when she came out and so she had to tighten her corset to like almost can't breathe and so she was like if I had to do it you have to do it. Like I don't care if your dress is kind of baggy at the rib bone area. Yeah. Well, and also, how else would you get your boobs in that weird position? Not weird, but just like projected just like up towards up. your chin. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There was it, they were like right below the chin. It was unnaturally high. There is a picture of Nicola Coughlin who plays Penelope napping on her own boobs, where she's just like she's like they put them right there, and I was so tired. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Um, so this is when the queen, like, blesses Daphne and says, you are a diamond? What does she say? Yeah, she calls her flawless. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's taken to mean a couple of different things. That she is the season's incomparable, which is, you know, that, that no other lady could compare to her. And then I think it's Lady Whistledown that calls her a diamond of the first water, which I just assume means, like, a really fancy diamond. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, I never looked it up, but that makes sense. But the lady whistled down, like, voiceover, which voiceover done by Julie Flippin' Andrews. So good. Like, I squealed a little the first time she came on. But she says when the queen is done with Daphne, she says the brighter a lady shines, the faster she may burn. Mm. Which I thought was, like, fun foreshadowing to several things that happen later. Yeah. That was good. Okay. Um, the only other thing that I noted, and this could also be the wrong episode, is I think Violet says reformed breaks makes the make the best husbands. And that's still my favorite thing she's ever said. <laughs> I do love that. And her love story is, it doesn't have its own book. And I actually listened to an interview with Julia Quinn, who's the author of this, because after all the eight Bridgerton books came out, the the readers were asking for a Violet, and the husband's name is Edmund, a Violet and Edmund book, because basically they're all throughout the series talked about as like a love story for the ages. And then he sadly dies relatively young, and then she has to move forward and like raise the kids. And um, Julia Quinn says she hasn't written it because it, because one of like the tenets of romance is a happily ever after and it's already predefined that he dies at the age of 38 and like leaves her as a single mother and she's like i just can't imagine like 
spending a whole book with two characters knowing that one is going to leave the other like that, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have I feel some... like she could write that. <laughs> she could. Her... Because she one, could. her happily ever after could be her motherhood. And then maybe once her children are married off, she meets an older Duke and gets remarried and rediscovers love at an older age. That's true. So she has, Julia Quinn has a prequel series to Bridgerton's, which is the Rokesby series, which is actually the first book of hers I read is the first one in the Rokesby series. Um, And so you meet a younger Violet and Edmund and some of the kids are really little in one of the books in that series. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like I was just, this, this was an interview she gave like in the last month or so. And she was saying like, she doesn't think she'll ever write a book with their story which to like to each their own i also think it's true that like just because a book like could be a good book doesn't mean that you have like the spark or the inspiration to want to write it or want to write it right now absolutely it's not her responsibility to write that i'm just i as a second hand hearing the her logic i find flaws find it faulty but Mm. one of the things she said is that she would have been worried that like what if that was the first book of hers that you read and it has and the hero dies at the end and like to her that's not what romance is supposed to give you which i did have a question that i noted in the first episode but does continue throughout um that anthony bridgerton the oldest brother that's kind of like taking on the, you know, men's duties of the house. He's the man of the house now. Um, I found him to be incredibly unlikable throughout the entire series. And I was wondering if in the books he is a little bit more sympathetic because I can see where there are some elements of him that definitely lend to sympathy, but anything in the TV show was overshadowed by the very many unlikable things that he does. And I was just wondering if his portrayal in the show like was equivalent to the book or what you guys thought about that. So to me, they changed the spirit of his character the most from what he is in the books with Violet being a close second. Um, So he in the books is much more conscientious of his siblings desires and he's much more uh, like his opinion from minute one is like i would never allow you to marry someone that you didn't love or truly want to marry like i would never force you into a marriage that you didn't want our family has enough money that if you didn't want to get married like i wouldn't even fault you that and so to to take that and flip it on its head so much to like him being willing to basically shove her into a marriage with this heinous individual was a a pretty big departure and i i think it's somewhat be setting up because season two is going to be his season and is going to be his love story if they go in the order of the books and i'm wondering if they just wanted to start him off in a place that was more villainous so that it was more of a transformation when they circle him back around okay I feel like they're headed towards that redemption arc and maybe to some people he's already there because he does change quite a bit, like even over the course of the first four episodes, you know, he kind of sees like the error of his ways, but it it wasn't enough for me. I still find him to be very unlikable. Mm -hmm. I mean, 80% of his conversations with Daphne is him saying something overbearing and then her saying just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I can't make my own choices and you should respect that I have my own mind and you should listen to me when I talk to you, especially when it's about things that affect my life. And that was one of the things I noticed because I I watched all the episodes in one day and then I went back and rewatched so that I actually had distinct memories uh, for talking about it. (laughs) And that was one of my biggest takeaways is like every conversation between the two of them is her trying to convince him that she's a whole human being that should be respected and him being like, that's exactly what he sounds like. It's the scientific term for what he did. (laughs) Um, One of the things I thought was interesting that it kind of shows you in this first episode. So Lady Danbury has her ball and um, 
so you get to see kind of the machine of social life at work Mm -hmm. and it brings to light how much as a young lady going to balls like this was like being in a job interview for your life so like you're putting only your the best pieces of you on display like you're highlighting all of your different talents and attributes and it it very much seemed like a job interview in a way that I thought was interesting. Yeah. And Anthony's acting as like a Regency cock block the entire time. <laughs> like, I'm going to make it so you don't get this job. For reasons unknown. Well, I think his motivation is that he doesn't think anyone is good enough for his sister. And he doesn't want her to be attached to someone that he deems to be unsuitable and so he actually at one point makes a bit of a list of things that are suitable and so he says an old line no debt legitimate parentage and to my knowledge has never hurt an animal or a woman and that's his criteria for like nigel burbrook is the perfect man and he even says you could fall in love with anyone so like why not him (laughs) Which is interesting coming from a person who is in love with someone who, by his own definition, is entirely unsuitable for his current station in life. Yeah, and Nigel's terrible. Yeah. Like, they cast the... Oh, go ahead, Julie. Sorry. I was just... I I was curious about his motivations with blocking Daphne's matches of if there was some sort of... um, like subconscious push towards ruining her love life because he can't have who he loves where it's like this block that he has in his mind of like, you know, he has this woman that he desperately wants and can't have. And so like, he's like blocking other people from having happiness as well. Oh, that's interesting. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Especially as later he keeps flipping back and forth on whether or not he can actually have her. And that seems driven by Daphne's actions. So that's a good point, Julie. Mm -hmm. What were you going to say, Jess? Oh, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) We can't circle back. We don't have the memories for that. Um, This in this episode, they introduced the idea that being the first person to meet a man is very important as though like love at first sight is so powerful that like you want to make sure he sees you before he sees all the other ladies just in case like you would create a lightning bolt because like what if he sees her first and falls in love with her but he could have seen you first and the same thing could have happened and i i love that idea (laughs) that's definitely how that works so yeah proximity is 98 percent of love (laughs) the other two percent is being good at banging and that's just science (laughs) <laughs> i like lady danbury so much i want a show with just her penelope and eloise yes yeah i i mean i wrote in the second episode that it was just so obvious that this was written by a woman and in very refreshing ways of like having female characters that are completely rounded human beings um everybody in the whole show gets called on their crap every single time like no one gets to just escape from consequences which in a lot which isn't realistic let's be real but it is refreshing that a lot of times these men get to kind of escape from their consequences even if we think of you know pride and prejudice really at the end of that story like all the men have gotten what they wanted without that much struggle or strife um while the women have you know been like through turmoil to get where they get and I feel like this show completely diverts from that where everyone experiences consequences in a way that I was just there for the entire time mm-hmm. yeah and I like how it sets in um it makes it feel like at first how some men might be exempt from consequences and then they still get some sort of comeuppance later mm-hmm. so Oh, go ahead, Amy. I was just going to say the other thing that I think is really important to this first episode that I want to make sure that we at least touch on is that kind of final few moments where Nigel thinks Daphne is going to marry him because Anthony has said she will marry you. I will make you. 
And so Daphne kind of runs off into a garden, which she, her and her garden running man, just yeah. like don't go to don't the go ladies' the retiring room where it's just other ladies and have your moment. You don't need to be amongst the bushes. <laughs> But so she goes out of the garden and Nigel follows her and he's like, FYI, this is going to happen. So like, you better get used to it. And she's like, no, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it won't. Right hook. Big fan of the right hook. And Simon, who we haven't talked about at all yet, Simon comes upon the scene and basically sees Daphne having to fight, fight Nigel off of her. And they come to an agreement that they can be mutually helpful to each other if they pretend to be courting and so julie i would like to know your take of this scene not being a person that read the books so also totally enjoyed the right hook i loved the fact that he simon approached the scene right as um nigel was getting like physical and like aggressive um and like ran toward her and it was very much setting him up to like come and save her. And instead she just punched this guy in the face, like right as he approached and she didn't need him. And I loved that. I was like, yes, protect yourself. Love it. So as far as the um, agreement between them, it was one of those things that as I was watching it, I was like, well, clearly they're going to fall in love any second, right? Like this is going to be one of those, you know, but then we fall in love for real. Um, and I thought that the setup of the fact that Daphne verbally told Simon multiple times that she wasn't interested in him, that she didn't want to marry him, that she wasn't one of the girls that was like chasing around after him, was making it very clear that Simon was going to want to pursue her almost immediately. And so I was really curious, and it's one of those things that you know that the conflict is coming because she's going to realize that she is into him, and he already seems to be into her, so what is going to be the thing that keeps them apart? And I thought that it was going to be the brother, and that wasn't really true. Like, that wasn't really what was keeping them apart for a while there. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought I it was so great the way it was filmed, like cutting between them having the conversation and then them walking back into the party with the music swelling and him saying, you know, we have to look really in love. And cu- the cutting back and forth between that, I thought was really beautiful. Um, the, and the music and then kind of like sw- swirling camera. I thought the vivid colors also really led to this like opulence in the moment. Well, I mean the entire show, but. Mm -hmm. So there was one other moment I wanted to highlight. And it's like the first, like Violet has a backbone moment of the show, which like I said with Anthony, like her character to me is the most fundamentally different from the one written in the books where she's kind of like revered by her children in the books and like she's seen as meddlesome but that they respect her and that they want to please her and and it just like they have a lovely familial relationship which here especially with certain characters seems much more adversarial where like her and anthony are constantly butting heads in this first season and it, a lot of it has to do with Daphne and the way that she, that Anthony is being really overbearing when it comes to chaperoning her in society. And Violet's like, listen, I understand society. I got this. If you could leave us alone, I could get her a match. And he, and he basically is like, mm, I'm a big man. I'll do it myself. And so near like the midway point of this episode, I think, which the amount of story they tell per episode, these are hour-long episodes and they feel longer than that because there's so much information in each episode um, was something that I noticed like consistently throughout like there was a couple of times where I was like talking to different people they're like oh what episode are you on I'm like oh it has to be like five or six and I was on episode three and it's just like I couldn't believe they were getting through so much plot in every single episode but there's this scene where Violet walks in on Anthony he's in the study And she basically says, like, you're screwing this up. Like, your sister was 
specifically called out by the queen as being the person to watch out for this season and now she doesn't even have a truly viable suitor and it's your fault and one of what she says to him is are you merely an older brother or are you the man of this house and i was like oh damn yeah. <laughs> a verbal lashing from your mother always has to feel good when you're basically just playing adult and mm-hmm. not actually doing it and then his his solution is like cool i'll i'll make this deal with nigel <laughs> Like yeah. you, know, you missed you you tried and you missed so hard to get the point of what she was saying. I love that because I literally wrote in my notes the mother's monologue about responsibility was poetry and his response was garbage. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Um, one thing. So I've watched a significant amount of cast interviews. And interviews with Julia Quinn, who's the author, and Shonda Rhimes, and Jonathan Bailey plays Anthony. And he's an adorable human. And they all seem, which, like, I get that, like, when you're doing press, the goal is to be likable. But they're all so likable. (laughs) And so Jonathan Bailey is, one, like, a West End musical guy. So there's all these clips of him on YouTube passionately singing songs, in case that's something you're into. Feel free to Google it he was talking on good morning america about the mutton chops that he has which are real they're not like stick-ons and he says <laughs> that they Wait, were that's like that's real as in that's his daily facial hair choice outside of the show or he just grew them for the show so he grew them for the show but okay. he had them for two years for filming the show and he said they were like his bonsai trees and he like had to tend to them every day (laughs) and um i thought that was endearing (laughs) i'm kind of disappointed i wanted you to say no that's how he's lived his whole life i honestly think for him like it's not a bad look yeah he's attractive enough that he could pull it off in real life Mm -hmm. people would think like oh that's a choice but okay you're making it yeah like, of all of them, I liked his hairstyle and Benedict's. Colin just looked like someone I went to high school with who, like, plays lacrosse. And Colin yeah. looked like he should have been in Twilight. Like, the third Twilight movie. <laughs> That's, he's very attractive. He has that very kind of coiffed hair. Dark mm-hmm. hair, light skin. He's a super nice guy. He's a really good character. But I was kind of distracted by that. He kind of has that, um, you know, like that squinty eye look that all of the characters in Twilight have. Jess wouldn't know. She's never seen Twilight. Well, you did see the first one. You just repressed it from your memory, right? (laughs) Yeah, I repress a lot of things from my memory. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive into episode two then. This is where we get the flashback to Simon's history. Mm-hmm. In literature, we call it a prologue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or, you know what? Like, if it was chapter two and it just said, like, flashback year, that would have made perfect flipping sense. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, it is, like, the saddest story. Yes. Absolutely. And it's as I was watching this episode, because I thought the thing that was going to come between them was going to be the brother. And then when I realized that it was going to be Simon was going to like be the reason they wouldn't be together or, you know, would be their conflict. I was just like, crap, you know, no, stop that. Why would you make a vow to a person that's dead now? And he doesn't know. He doesn't know if you're, you know, happy or not. Uh, I was so frustrated. Which that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. Having not read the books all through episode one, you have no idea that he has this baggage. He's just, like, the hottest hottie that's ever had forearms in episode one. (laughs) Plus, you really, you don't get the vow to not, so he makes a vow to his dying father on his, on the father's deathbed that um, their line will end with him and that he is not going to have any children. And that scene, that flashback, is the last one of the episode. So it happens at the very end of the episode. And so it, the episode does a beautiful job of building his character throughout because it gives you these little snippets of 
his childhood where his father was like emotionally abusive and ignored him and thought that he was a simpleton because he had a stutter and him working to overcome all of these things. And it builds him up to be such a dynamic and complex character with all these layers of like, oh, this is why he won't let people get close to him. This is why he, you know, struggles with commitments. Um, and so, yeah, when it gets to the end of it and he makes this vow to never have children, it was one of those things where it almost felt like a nail in the coffin, you know, where it was like, mm-hmm. oh, like he had all of this beautiful growth over the course of this episode. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, now we have to stop. Like, this is going to be the thing that's going to ruin it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and you realize then it's not external factors at all. It's just some internal kind of immature battle with this like with trying to prove something to some Mm -hmm. to your point to someone who's dead yeah i do adore the relationship between him and lady danbury and that's something that the show built upon and kind of they created most of that for the show that's not really in the books as much and just i loved being able to see the character of Lady Danbury taking on that kind of mother bear role for him and being like, I'm going to seek you out. I'm going to take you in. I'm going to help you go to school. I'm going to help you stand up to your father and tell him who you are and just everything about that. I just, I love the way that character is played. The actress is amazing. And I don't know, something about their bond just feels really special. Yeah, I I thought it was nice. Um, And I do want to clarify, like, I'm not saying the book is better or the TV show is better. They just handle things differently. Yeah. Um, And they're both doing things that they like. They're both accomplishing different goals. But in the book, they have Simon's mother pass away alone. And it was good that Lady Danbury was there in the show. Like, Mm -hmm. it made it less horrifying. I mean, it was still horrifying. I we did not talk about this when we talked about the book, but I I hate that they have him like overcome his stutter. Um I I'm not going to verbalize this very well, so but um it's just not how you would handle a stutter in 2020, which I know um this is a historical fantasy. Usually with speech pathologists today, you're finding people who are like, work with your stutter and it's okay you have a stutter. Mm -hmm. But it really got me thinking about like, what is the responsibility when depicting historical fantasy to be mindful of things like that? And like, does that send a message to people who are watching it today that like a stutter is something to be overcome rather than like, no, you can just live with it? Yeah, I noticed too how it seemed like there were just differences in how the show handled it versus how the book handled it. And I think a lot of it has to do with your view as someone who's watching the story versus someone who's reading the story and truly in the characters' heads. Because you read from Simon's perspective continually throughout the book. And so he can, he can think I have a stutter coming or I need to pause and take a deep breath so that I don't stutter. And so it keeps it kind of in the forefront of your mind when you're reading from his perspective in the show he doesn't read to me as a character with any sort of speech problem. And it's, I think part of it has to do with the fact that you're not in his head. And the idea is supposed to be that he's so good at hiding it that no one else would notice if you didn't know what he was thinking. Um, But to me, it almost erased that element of the character. Mm -hmm. I agree with you about that, that as someone who only watched the show, the, I thought that it was, almost a little bit strange that the stutter was such a formative part of his childhood and and of who he is. And then it never surfaces in the scenes that we see, you know, like it's not like when he gets really angry or, you know, like excited or something like that, like it resurfaces, which is something that is typical for people that, you know, have a bit of a stutter and have, you know, managed to work around it or whatever, it's it's not gone forever. You know, there are still times that it's going to pop back up. 
And I was kind of waiting for that to happen, and it never did. And I wondered if it was supposed to be a sign of his growth as a character. Like, they were trying to show that he built such a wall, such an armor around himself, that this isn't something that impacts him outwardly anymore. Um, But, yeah, Amy, because we couldn't see inside of his head, it was something that was just very disconnected. So... And I wonder if I noticed this because I watch everything with closed captioning on. I was watching and it, the stutter shows up two more times as an adult. And it's one when he's showing like he's talking to Lady Danbury and like revealing that he actually has feelings for Daphne. And then there's one in anger. But you really don't hear it. I think I just noticed it because of the way they spelled it out in the closed captioning. So that is an interesting point. Like if you're not reading, because I like to read my TV shows even. um, But if you're if you're not reading it and you haven't read the book, then it's kind of it like it glosses over it. That's interesting. Which I mean, anybody is going to stumble over words sometimes. That's just part of being a, a person. And so when the instances are so small like that. I, I, don't, I don't remember stutters in either of those scenes. Mm-hmm. So there is one thing Eloise says in this episode when her and Penelope are walking that stuck out to me. It's like, I think the only time I've straight disagreed with Eloise so far oh. in this show. She says, having a nice face and pleasant hair is not an accomplishment. And let me tell you how hard I've had to work to have a nice face and pleasant hair. Yeah. <laughs> that shit does not come easy. And I just want to throw it out there that um, some of us work very hard for presentable faces and presentable hair. <laughs> it's like a misconception through all of time that pleasant faces and hair require no effort. I know. So at one point, someone says, we are to be married, you are to be buried. I don't know who said that and who was on the receiving end of it, but I wrote that down because I really loved it. It would be helpful if I could remember who said it, but... It seems like something Nigel would have said. Probably. Yeah. Or potentially one of Marina's suitors. Like one of the old men with Marina. Yeah. Potentially. Is this the scene where the queen is sniffing stuff? I the mean, snuff, is this the, the, the snuff box scene? Yeah, the snuff box. Um, it yeah, it could be. That's in this episode. So, what, what is she sniffing, Amy? You're my Google. Remember? Oh, snuff. Yeah, what is she sniffing? It's called snuff. <laughs> yeah, but That's... what is it? <laughs> what is snuff? Okay, hold on. I mean, it's not cocaine, but what is snuff? Is a smokeless tobacco made from ground or pulverized tobacco leaves, inhaled or snuffed into the nasal cavity, delivering a swift hit of nicotine and a lasting flavored scent. So it's a nose cigarette. I was not expecting it to be <laughs> nose cigarette. I was not expecting it to be a tobacco product. That's interesting. I thought, yeah, I thought it, would be it was closer like... to cocaine than to a cigarette. I know. I thought it was like opium or something. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently not. It's not even huh. that bad then. Snuff away. Okay. <laughs> not really. Listeners, don't do drugs. Yeah. I feel like, does that mean that in that time period, like, nose cancer was more of a thing? Because, like, wherever is, like, the entrance point seems like cancer's more likely. I'm not going to Google that. That seems sad. So, I feel like this is the episode where we kind of have, like, the activation of the female characters to save Daphne where the like it's become apparent that Antony isn't going to back down on this marrying Nigel thing and that everyone else is going to need to like come together and like fix this and I love the way that Violet is just like we're going to do what women do we're going to talk and the fact that basically you find your own source of power within like the the marginalized bubble that society provides you like to find your own power in that and be like, I'm going to use this power, even though like you didn't want me to have it. And you thought that putting me here meant I couldn't have it. Well, guess what? I'm going to use it against you anyway. (laughs) I love that. I wrote just my only note was men make everything worse. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. We have, I think, um, our first boxing scenes in this episode, which, like, was that just a greedish shirtlessness? I think, think yes, because <laughs> all the characters got punched in the face a lot, and no one had any facial injury at any point in time. Yeah, so except... It was purely a moment for them to just, like, show off everything. Except yeah. for Nigel. Except for Nigel. It's like if you were a bad person, the punches could show on your face. That is and true. if you were a good person, they didn't. Yeah. We couldn't damage Simon's face. Good lord. Yeah, I think it's just that Nigel was um, ugly anyway. And so add a black eye, whatever. But with Simon and what's the name of his friend that is his, like his boxing partner? Oh, I don't know. Who does the ex? Because he does yeah. exhibitions and everything, and he's just his face is flawless. Like his skin is beautiful. I, yeah, boxers can't look like that in real life, right? Is they have to be when... all messed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his name is Will. Thank you. Is this when um, Simon's beat up knuckles graze across Daphne's back in a scandalous manner? I think so. I mean, he would have his... had the beat up knuckles in this episode. So he. So basically, Nigel comes up to Simon and almost like he wants to create a physical altercation. Like, because he starts by insulting Daphne and then he tells Simon, I need her and you don't. You could have anyone. I need her. So why don't you just like, let me have it. And it reminded me, it reminded me of Bobby Newport in Parks and Rec when he's like, what if you just didn't get it and I got it? And that was better. <laughs> and like, and it, Simon's like, you better not impugn the honor of this lady. And he turns to leave. And then Nigel's like, well, maybe I should talk some shit about your father and see how that goes. And it turns out how that went is with several swift punches to the face. And a couple of things I thought were kind of interesting about that is that he doesn't hit him once it's not like a single righteous like punch of indignation he like beats him for a minute and it it's like pretty violent yeah it's intense which i thought was interesting because like there's so many other moments in the show where like you could have violence or violence kind of is presented to the watcher like in all the different boxing matches but it doesn't look violent because there's no blood there's no like spittle there's none of these like elements that make you think that something like really physical is happening and then in this moment it's like for this evil man we're like you get all of that all of a sudden and it's kind of shocking because you've seen people punch each other and had it not result in anything multiple times already So I had a pretty different view of that. You're right that it is kind of shocking. It is suddenly very aggressive and violent in a way that we haven't seen in the show so far. But to me, that was Simon's way of showing the audience that he's so in love with Daphne. Like the passion with which he was punching Nigel in the face was the passion for which he loves and needs to protect Daphne's honor from this terrible man. And because, I mean, I guess the book you said is like told from his perspective a lot of the time. And so you know what he's thinking in the show, you really don't get a lot of what's going on inside his head. And so this was one of the defining moments for me as like, Oh, he's in love with her. Like he absolutely is in love with her. And this is a way for them to show us how passionate he is, which fighting and like hurting people for love is not a great solution. But it was just one of the, it's a trope, right? It was one of those things where I was like, oh, this is what that means. Yeah. It, and um, I think it also like in the absence of his inner monologue, be, like in him narrating it, you kind of, because of his violence, you get to see him acting out in this very masculine or what we traditionally consider to be masculine way and kind of see his conflict. Mm-hmm. So promenading happens, which I feel like we should probably promenade again. Like we we have a river here. We should get as dressed up as humanly possible and then just go flounce along the river. Well, and also take household furniture and put it under a tent outside as a picnic. Yeah. Which I guess REI has kind of replicated that experience. It's just similarly expensive furniture, but it's lightweight and packable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
Nigel is now incensed. And I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is that as soon as Daphne kind of pieces together what happened, that Nigel confronted Simon, Simon hit Nigel, she's like, whatever you think you fixed, you certainly didn't. Like, if anything, you just made him want to double down and like you've made it worse. And so Nigel comes up with a special license, which this is a continuity issue potentially for me, is when you went to get a special license, you said who the bride and groom were. And if the queen, who is later unwilling to grant a special license for someone to marry Daphne, grants the special license to Nigel to marry Daphne, when in the same episode, we know the queen does not want her to marry Daphne, doesn't make sense to me that Nigel would have been able to get the special license. That's true. This is before the prince was introduced as a character in this equation, which maybe lends a little bit of reason. Like the queen doesn't see the prince as the match for Daphne yet. And so she wouldn't be quite as opposed to, you know, granting a license to somebody else. But I do see your point. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Nigel basically says, like, here it is, we're going to marry. And Simon, for a second, is like, Err, and then he's like, oh, wait, I don't want to marry her either. Penguin away. And <laughs> Lady Bridgerton, Violet, gets together with the housemaids and comes up with a plan to invite Lady Burbrook, Nigel's mother, over to the house for the specific purpose of doing recon on the Burbrook household and finding something to use to blackmail them or like to use against them to make it obvious that they can't force this match. And I did love Lady Burbrook in like all of her ridiculous kippers on rye, my (laughs) perfect angel, like that, like everyone's met that mother. I love that portrayal of that mother. (laughs) Like, God didn't bless me with a second child because my first is too perfect. Like, I loved everything about it. I have a really strong revulsion to that character, which I think (laughs) might link back to the fact that I'm a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, like, no shade to my students, they, you know, they're lovely people and their parents are lovely people too. But every once in a while you get one that's exactly like that. And it is so rough to deal with in real life. That does make sense. So this is where we find out more about Marina's situation um, and that she's pregnant. And that's why they need to rush to get her married, which there's two things about that. One I love how the show depicts that the only way you find out about your period is whether or not your sheets are a mess. Yeah. yeah as though it only starts at night. Yeah. Right. Like that's not the only time a period starts, but I, I mean, I guess the housekeeper would know cause she's doing the laundry. The other thing um, about Marina in this like storyline is lady Featherington's made out to be a villain in this. Like she's pushing Marina to get married, But, like, it's also 1813, and I know this is historical fantasy, so we've changed things around a little bit. But, like, if she doesn't get married and she's just pregnant without a husband, she has no one to take care of her. And so, like, I don't know. It's it's the same thing that we talk about with um, Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice and um, even, like, pushing to get Daphne married to Nigel like some of it is out of this like protectiveness of saying we want you to be taken care of and I think this is the episode where we find out also that Mr. Featherington is kind of worthless and has Mm -hmm. lost all of their money Mm -hmm. so even though she's going about it in a way that's super manipulative and she writes those fake letters to Marina ultimately she's just trying to make sure her daughters and her cousin or nephew I mean niece are taken care of Mm -hmm. and I do think none of it is out of any sense of motherliness or trying to care for marina it's how will marina's situation impact her own daughters and how does she minimize that damage and i think that's one of the ways that the character is more villainous because i think if there was a if you thought there was a true i don't know i just don't get the sense that there's like a true caring for what happens to marina because her first instinct is pack her off back to the country she's her parents problem not like how do i get her married to a decently rich guy so that she can just live her life 
But even if she is like, how do I resolve this to take care of my own daughter so it doesn't impact them? That I still think that's like, that's a reasonable thing for her to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's true. And I do think that she's pretty sympathetic, actually. Like, compared to the Lady Featherington of the books, I was like, oh, do I feel feelings for this Lady Featherington? I kind of do. Yeah. And I know, I don't think this is until the fourth episode, but, like, I kind of hated that the only other, like, central... Well, like the fourth, maybe, central Black character is, like, a pregnant woman that we kind of it's not a great storyline and it sucks like that whole thing. But I do think she has one of the most complex storylines. Like she's juggling the most because she's from the country. She's brought into the city. You get the sense that she doesn't really know these cousins or this aunt and uncle very well. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is her trying to navigate this new landscape, having just lost potentially the man she loves which like she thinks he's off fighting in a war but is otherwise fine um and that she just like hasn't heard from him yet um and so like the amount of upheaval in her life as she's finding out about what's happening in her own body is like a catastrophic amount of like trauma it seems like to have happening to one person all at once yeah I love how Penelope please like, how did you get in this situation? And Marina's like, cake. And Penelope's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Again, can someone please just tell these women how sex works? Just right. Just like the a five minute tutorial of like, here's what happens. Done. It's so simple to just tell someone. Which I am coming from a similar place of frustration. Amy has already uh, talked about how, like, we didn't talk about these types of things in our house when we were growing up. And, like, how Amy's kind of uncomfortable talking about sex. Like, so am I. And I learned about it from her. So it was a <laughs> Very incomplete Amy. information. Yeah. It was a mixture of Amy and Seventeen magazine. And, to be honest, it was not sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> I learned about sex probably at like four or five when my mom was pregnant again. And so she gave us also just found out my mom might be listening to this. So, hey, mom. Um, <laughs> I um, mom. Yeah. She, they, she gave us a book like where do babies come from? And it like talked about penis going into vagina and then sperm and swimming <clears throat> up and nope. planting itself nope. into an egg. And nope. yeah. My mom Didn't taught Lamaze, though, too, where you teach women how to breathe through birth and stuff. So, like, we were always around pregnant ladies. So, I mean, and then we had, she, like, when you, we turned, like, 10 or 11, all of us got a copy of a book called What's Happening to Your Body Book for Girls. <laughs> Didn't have that either. All this yeah. seems like good info for a woman to have. Yeah. yeah. One of the things my husband and I talk about, I don't want to say like regularly, it's not like a daily conversation, but every now and then we'll talk about what you would do if you got sucked back in time to make money. Like what knowledge from the future would you use to like set yourself up for life in the past? And now I feel like my answer is going to be that like charge ladies a nickel and tell them exactly how periods and sex work. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you could have like a relatively thriving business. Yeah, it would have to be a back alley business, though. That's fine. Because it wouldn't be appropriate. You would be like the lady whistle down of sex. Yeah, they'd be like, you scandalous harlot, how dare you? Yeah. And I'd be like, how could you know these things? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um,. And then I think if Simon Simon says to Daphne at one point in this episode, if I guess if I were forced to take a wife, you would be the least objectionable. Mm-hmm. Which I know that's probably not supposed to be a swoon moment, but I was like, look at this emotionally unavailable rake expressing his feelings. <laughs> Can we talk about his vests and like just yeah. his clothes? Please. They're so fucking good. And like, I love the paisley patterns on his vest and like the mixture of like maroon and like this metallic thread and everything about it. I, one of 
one of the things I would commit to is I would be willing to have Daphne baby bangs if it meant that men would wear vests like that. Like I would give, I would wear bad bang fashion if it meant that men wore any fashion at all. (laughs) (laughs) The costume, like everyone's costume was just strikingly impressive throughout the entire thing. I loved, like it should win awards. The costuming was magnificent. Mm -hmm. And part of that for me is the fact that I have never seen a period piece where I did not find the men's like high collar neck ascot situation to look absolutely ridiculous. And it did not in this one. I was into it. And I don't know what was different. Lots of other period pieces also have very attractive men in them. Something about it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the costuming was so good. I wrote down how much did it cost to film this? Because like the sets were amazing. They go over the at one point they span through the wall um over the walls and like there's portraits painted of the actual actors in and I know you can make that probably on like um Photoshop or something, but like just beautiful sets and beautiful costumes. So I one of the things I noticed is that the show really highlights the difference between Daphne and Eloise, who are two sisters that by like virtue of being sisters and in a close family, they love each other and their worldviews could not be more different. And the things they value in people could not be more different. And the way that the books progress where you kind of have one central Bridgerton character in each book, you don't see that interaction as much. Like you get a little bit of it. Um, I like the way that the show kind of highlights how like forcing those two characters to coexist would naturally create tension where what Daphne Daphne's entire mindset is around how to formulate this perfect match for herself and Eloise's whole mindset is how can she avoid marriage for as long as possible and the the one truly doesn't understand how the other could feel that way like Daphne Mm -hmm. doesn't understand how Eloise could not want marriage and Eloise doesn't understand how Daphne could want it and so I really liked getting to see that kind of interplay between sisters where they do have kind of loving moments and tender moments but they also have this like really true to life conflict happening between them yeah is this I can't I I mean I watched one through four like recently like the other day and so it's all blending together but like the I thought the scene with the piano playing where she's like just come up with it you know like stop it you're so annoying and then also when she's like Daphne this might have been in four when um she's like how could you want children don't you remember the pain our mother went through Mm -hmm. it was horrifying but still able to see the love there like it wasn't just black and white like we don't care about each other and we're going to be cruel is just like the battle you have with understanding your family Mm -hmm. yeah it's a very realistic relationship between the two where there are some things that they are aligned on and they do understand about each other and then other things that they'll just like bicker about it until the end of days Mm -hmm. so that's most of what i had and then obviously like you said earlier episode two ends with the scene with simon and his father which is just like so intense to watch. Yeah, with the death gurgle. Yeah, I hated listening to that, which I don't think you were supposed to like listening to it. But especially with everything going on in the world right now, and knowing that like the illness ravishing our country is like one that affects your ability to breathe, like listening to that, I was. Ugh. It like made my skin crawl. Yeah, the level of emotion in that scene from both characters was a little bit jarring like it was so intense which a lot of this show does come from a very dramatic place but I feel like that drama and this intensity are two different categories of thing and so like just the the moment where Simon tells his father to speak and he's like speak you fucking monster I was like oh my god (laughs) like it was just it was so much emotion in that sentence in that moment Um, And then, of course, the father dies directly after that. 
it, like I needed to like sit and take a moment after that episode ended and just like be and just think about that and let that soak in because it was so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the drama otherwise is very like soap opera esque. Mm-hmm. You know, it it is high stakes, but it's also not, and you're kind of distracted by you know the music and the flowing wine and everything else, and then they're they're in a dark room. Um, or darkened room, you know, it's just the two of them. There aren't any other observers to this exchange, which makes it feel more heightened. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the fact that no one escapes consequences in this show, where, like, the father obviously was, you know, an angry man that, like, demanded perfection from everyone around him. And anyone that lives their life that way is bound to be disappointed for much of their time. But it's something that he was clearly always in power in the relationships he had in his life. And so in this, like, very last moment, that power was taken away from him by the person that he always lorded over, right? Like, even in ignoring him, completely lorded over. And so mm-hmm. it was just one of those things where it's like no one can escape in this show from the consequences of what they've done. And this is one of the steeper consequences that we see. Mm-hmm. It One thing, and it's true to the books that I thought was interesting, is how much society doesn't realize how estranged they were. That, like, multiple people, like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, you look just like your father. And, like, the fact that they didn't seem to hide their disdain for each other when they were alive. Like his father pretended he was dead for a significant portion of his life until he basically couldn't anymore. And so it seems like it'd be pretty obvious that you would just be like, "Mm, I'm just going to say hello and not bring up his dead father. Like (laughs) maybe that would be better. All in all though, I, as like a person who read the books and really appreciated the books, I feel like, I like and enjoy and appreciate the show in a similar way, but as a separate entity in some ways. Like, I really yeah. like the things they updated. I really like the things that they changed. And I like being able to talk about the differences um, because it's not just a direct replica, right? It's got its it's got its own, like, creative soul in the center of it that you can, that is, like, definitively different from the books. But it's it's just so flipping enjoyable. Yeah, and it's bringing romance into the mainstream, which is really exciting. Yeah. All of Romance Twitter has been talking about nothing but what other books deserve to be adapted. Yeah, Virgin River is out. If you haven't watched that, highly recommend it. It, It's about, um, I mean, it's based on romance novels. Okay, so that is episodes one and two of Bridgerton. Um, And then next episode, we're going to talk about episodes three and four. Yes. Mm -hmm. We were going to talk about all four of them, but then it turned out we had too much to say. Yeah, we like hearing ourselves talk. And we think you do, too. Uh, anyway find us on social media at ohg podcast on twitter and instagram or you can send us an email and we have a website what yeah um and yeah so thanks for listening and oh julie do you know what our sign off is yeah uh i do know should i which part should i take what do i do the first one yeah okay oh wait you say the first part and then just now say the second part at the same time Okay. <laughs> we can do it. Are okay. you guys ready? Yeah. Uh-huh. Stay obstinate. Stay, Stay headstrong. headstrong. Yeah. <laughs> nailed it. We straight uh. nailed it. <laughs> <laughs>